Well, good morning, everyone. Good job. That was very good. It's so very good for us to be back with you this Sunday morning. It is a, um, a great joy to be worshiping with you and to be able to minister God's word is a great joy and privilege of mine. Uh, my wife and I give you uh, much thanks uh, for your prayers and your support over the past several weeks. We are doing well. Uh, God has been so good to us. Uh, God has uh, kept us by his right hand and blessed us, showered us with his Holy Spirit, and our hearts are good. Uh, we have been attending uh, Faith Bible Church of South County. In fact, the weekend after our family retreat, uh, Pastor John Smith preached from Romans 5. I told John, okay, I'm going to be there at Sunday. Um, and I'll see you at Sunday service. And Pastor John goes like, oh, we're not having service. We're at our retreat. Why don't you come? So I went to another church retreat, and the guest speaker spoke from Romans 5. <laughs> so I think God's telling me something. Um, there is a, really a sovereignty there. I got, I got saved at Romans 5, actually, uh, verses 1 through 5. Some of you might know Berean Community Church, Pastor Peter Kim there. He was one who led me to Christ. And uh, he was sharing with me one of our Bible studies from Romans 7. And he was lost and confused, and I couldn't really follow what he was saying. So I, got insp- so I, I, got, I started flipping the page of the Bible and landed on Romans 5. And so he was sharing from Romans 7, but I got saved on Romans 5. <laughs> God's sovereignty there. And, uh, and to hear Pastor John and this past Sunday, uh, two Sundays ago, Milton Vincent speak on Romans 5, has been really good for our souls. But we, we miss all of you. It's a joy to be back. Uh, we'll be back two more Sundays in the next two months, and we'll be back here um, on December. Um, so on this day, I want to just um, briefly share. This, this announcement's more for our older members. Majority of you won't know what I'm talking about, so I apologize, but it's important for our older members. Um, this past Friday, I had an opportunity to meet up with an old friend of mine, uh, John Lee. He's with us this morning, and we were here together 12 years ago. We planted this church together. We're ministering here, and um, God had a different plan for us, and we, we had some difficulties. But this past Friday, God, in his miraculous way, caused us to come together and reconcile uh, forgive one another and pray for one another. And uh, I think for the first time in our lives, we actually hugged. Right? <laughs> That's how intense it was. Like, we hugged one another, both arms. Um, <laughs> so you know that's true. Um, and so for the older members, you know what this means. This means God is gracious. God is loving. God is faithful. God hears our prayers, and God answers our prayers. And so... Um, just wanted to share that. Majority have no idea what's going on. Find the older member, and they'll tell you the, the seven-part series on the life of John and James here at Cornerstone. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you stand and open to Hebrews chapter 4. Fourteen through sixteen. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. This is the word of God. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Please be seated. <clears throat> oh, I forgot to mention one thing. I just want to make sure that this is said and you guys hear it, that, that I, with all the sincerity of my heart, thank the Lord for the, the elders of our church, the leaders of our church, Bob and Dan. These are men that I love, I trust. They're doing a very difficult job in trying to rein my stubborn heart, my hard-hearted and rebellious heart. So please continue to support and pray for them. I thank the Lord for them. I'm committed to these men. I am wholly submitted to them. I trust them. So just wanted to make sure that that is out there. Well, our text today comes from uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And uh, the title of the message is, Jesus Christ is our great, our supreme, our superior, our better high priest. This is the 19th book in the New Testament. It was not written by the Apostle Paul. We are not certain as who wrote it, but we are certain that it was written by the Holy Spirit. It was inspired by God himself. These are the very words of God. This was written to a group of first century Christians around A.D. 60, A.D. 70, A.D. AD 60, 70, I'm a little rusty here. The first century Christians who were in danger of giving up. They were considering backsliding, shrinking back, turning away, recanting their profession of faith, renouncing their faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Why would they do this? Why would they turn away from the Lord who has so loved them, who is infinitely merciful, whose goodness is his glory? Why would they do that? Well, two reasons. First reason was heightened persecution. These were Jewish Christians. And persecution was rampant against them. The high priest Ananias condemned Christianity and said, it is not a sect within Judaism, it is a cult, it is blasphemy. And they banished anyone, any Jew, believing in Jesus as the Messiah from worshiping in the temple of God. So they were forbidden to offer sacrifices. They were prevented from coming to the temple for ritual cleansing. 
They were not allowed to have priests pray for them and atone for their sins. The temple was the center of their life, and yet they were forbidden to enter and participate in Judaism. Not only that, they were cast out from the synagogue. They were unsynagogued. They were excommunicated from the hub, from the life of Jewish community. They were considered unclean. They were considered worse than Gentiles. Gentiles were dogs. They were unclean. You were not to dine with them. You were not to associate with them. If you touched a Gentile, you couldn't worship God. But Jews who were Christians, they were blasphemers. And they were worse than Gentiles. So not only were they banished from the temple and the synagogue, but also from the family unit. This continues to this day. Orthodox Jewish families, if a member of their family becomes a Christian, they hold a funeral service because a member of their family has died. This person was dead to them because they are blaspheming God by trusting in Jesus as the Christ. I remember hearing of uh, Dr. Feinberg in Talbot. He came from an Orthodox Jewish family. And he was sharing how on Thanksgiving he would drive to his family's house. And because he was banished, he was uh, was rejected by his family, he would drive and park on the street. And a cold winter night, looked through the window of their parents' home and watched his family and relatives celebrate Christmas. And he was not allowed to enter. It goes on to this day. But by this time... As we know from the book of Acts, persecution spread not just to the leaders, but to every single member of the Christian faith. And it was no longer a relational persecution. It wasn't an emotional or a spiritual persecution. It was physical persecution. Hebrews 10, 32 through 34 speaks of how they were physically assaulted. Their homes were plundered. Some were cast into prison because of their faith in Christ. Now Hebrews 10, the writer commends them. All these things you experienced, but you had joy. You are like the apostles in Acts 2 and Acts 6. They were rejoicing for they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And yet that joy was ebbing It was a decrease in their joy. Why? Because persecution was continuing and it was increasing. They thought Ananias is going to die soon. Herod is getting old. How long can they hold on to their anger? It's going to subside and there'll be a time of peace, relative tranquility, where we can practice our faith with freedom. And yet what they experienced was the opposite anything of the sort, persecution was increasing and it was at a high pitch level and so they were growing weary. They were growing tired. They were losing their heart. When the writers were saying, endure, persevere, hang on, run the race of faith, don't quit, They wanted to continue, but it was so hard and so long, so arduous. 
They were considering quitting. Now, the first reason was persecution. Second reason for them considering quitting was because of deception. The, the, the Judaizers were lying to them. They were speaking to them, and they were saying, why are you suffering needlessly? All of this that you are going through is for no benefit to you. They were telling them, all that Christianity offers is offered in the law of Moses. You have the law of Moses <coughs> given by God himself. He wrote it with his own finger. You have the law of Moses. It's in the Bible for us to live. Why? Why the New Testament? It is unnecessary. Well, the Christians would counter, but what about our sins? Right? We need our sins to be forgiven. We need our sins to be atoned for. How can we be righteous before God through the works of the law? And the Judaizers are saying, that is why within the Mosaic system, within the law of Moses, there is the sacrifices and the priests for that very reason. We have the priesthood. We have the sacrifices. So these priests sacrifice and pray for you for the remission of your sins. So all this Christianity stuff is unnecessary. Come back. We have the priesthood. In fact, we have the high priest who goes every year, once a year, Leviticus 16, Yom Kippur, and he enters into the most holy place and faces the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God, and he prays for your sins. Therefore, this new covenant Doctrine is unnecessary, so come back. So some in the church were convinced of this. They were weary of the persecution of how difficult the Christian life is. And they were convinced in their hearts, that's right. There is the law and there is sacrifice, and I'm okay. And some actually apostatized and went back to Judaism. But the writer of Hebrews there is no uh, greeting here. There is no salutation. It begins. It begins, and it's almost like a sermon. Some have said, this is a New Testament sermon. This is preaching inspired by the Holy Spirit given to us. And he is saying this to the Jewish Christians, and he is saying this to you now, and I am saying this to you now. Saying, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't turn back. Persevere. Endure. Why? Because Jesus is superior. He is greater. He is better. In fact, all of the old is just a shadow. Jesus is the reality. All of this are signs pointing to Jesus. They're all types. Christ Jesus is the fulfillment. Don't go back. No, go forward to Jesus. Run to him because he is the true Messiah. He is the high priest. If you were to do a flyby over the book of Hebrews, you would see these, these huge 
beautiful themes in every chapter. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is how Jesus is superior than previous revelation. God spoke long ago in many ways through various people, but now he has spoken to us through his Son, directly through Jesus. Jesus is better. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Not only that, Hebrews 1, 5 through 13, Jesus is superior to the angels. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, he is superior to Moses. Chapter 4, our text, 14 through 16, he is not just a high priest. The high priest is one guy, of all the Levitical priests, one guy was chosen by men to enter the most holy place. No, Jesus was chosen by God. Therefore, he is the great high priest, superior to the Levitical priesthood. Chapter 7, there is another line, Melchizedek, that shows himself in, in Genesis 17. I believe Jesus is superior to Melchizedek. Chapter 8, Jesus mediates a better new covenant. And then chapter 10, Jesus' sacrifice is far superior than the sacrifice of animals. The animal's blood did not atone for sin, but Christ's blood atones for sin once for all. In view of this reality of supremacy of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, don't quit, don't give up, persevere, run this race of faith with endurance. Now, in light of these two truths, you'll find, you'll find these two words 14 times in the book of Hebrews. And it's let us, let us. Right. Uh, it's, a, it's an imperative, it's a command. And so Hebrews 4.11, let us strive to enter that rest. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Hebrews 13.13, let us go to him. Him is Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he received. 14 times. And we have to love the humility of the writer of Hebrews. He's not saying, man, you weak sauce Christians, right? get your act together. What is wrong with you? You know, a little bit of persecution and you want to go home, right? What do you think, right? Christian life's going to be a, a you know, walk in the park, right? a bed of roses. No, Christ suffered and died and you're going to go home and cry because somebody called you a name. What's wrong with you? Get your act together. He does not do that. What does he say? Let us. I'm with you. My heart is weak with you. I am tempted just like you. I am suffering with you. So let us together not quit, but run to Jesus. Now, that's the the whole forest. Now we're going to look at one tree, maybe one branch, maybe one leaf, and that's verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4. And here we find the writer of Hebrews giving two reasons why 
Jesus is the true high priest. He is the great high priest. And two imperatives, imperatives, commands that directly flow from those two reasons. Again, two reasons why Jesus is the great high priest and two imperatives that flow from those two um, reasons. First one is found in verse 14. We have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Now, it's not stated here, but obviously the contrast is the Levitical high priest on Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16, once a year, he passed through three places to enter into God's glory. He was at the outer court, the court of Gentiles. He would pray, ritual cleansing, sacrifice, and he would go to the holy place where the furnishings were. And then he would pray and, and, and cleansing and, and, and confess. And then he would enter the holy of holies. He passed through different stages and through this final curtain to enter into God's presence. Now, once he was there, because he was still just a man, and we'll find out more later that he was still a, he was a sinner. At each point, he would, before he could atone for the sins of Israel, he would have to confess his own sins. He would have to sacrifice animals for his own sins and get his heart and confess and be forgiven of sins before he can enter. And while he was in the Holy of Holies, he couldn't go in there and say, I mean, I couldn't blame him if he wanted to. I'm going to stay here. I'm not coming out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to soak it in here. This is where God is. This is where my Father is. I want to worship here. I'm going to sing every song I know in the hymnal, right, and spend hours here. No, he couldn't stay. He'd have to do his duties and immediately leave. There was no lounging around. There is no sitting. There is no fellowshipping with God. He is there to work. Work is done. He needs to leave. But not Jesus. He is the great high priest. Why? Because he didn't pass through earthly courts. He passed through the heavens. Right? He passed through the heavens. And he entered into God's throne, his presence. He went to heaven itself, to God's kingdom. This passing through heaven speaks of his resurrection and ascension, where bodily he ascended into heaven. And that vindicates, that testifies, that, that is proof positive that he was not a liar, he was not a lunatic, he was who he said he was. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was and is sinless. And therefore, though they buried him, he rose. Death could not keep him. Sin's sting was powerless against him. Death could not hold its grip against him because only the soul that sins shall die. He had no sin. So death had no authority. Death had to release him. And so he rose from the grave, he passed through the heavens, and he entered into God's presence, and he went to the right hand of God's throne. And Hebrews 1, 3 says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, 
He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. The Levitical priest, he needs to get out. Your work is done. You are a sinner. You stay. Your heart's going to sin. You're going to die on the spot. Not Jesus. He goes to God's throne itself because he is God. And the writer of Hebrews says here, verse is son of God. He sat down. His work is done. Consider the posture. The priest, the whole while he's in the outer court, the holy place, the most holy of holies, he's never sitting down. He's working. For them, it's work day. You know, on Sunday, it's my work day, right? It's the stands work day. You guys are sitting, I'm standing, right? I'm working, you are resting. Just like the temple, the priests were working, not Jesus. His work is done. It's completed. The telestai, he cried out on the cross. It is finished. He accomplished redemption of God's elect. Therefore, at the right hand of God's throne, he sat down to have communion with the Father once and for all. I mean, this is not even worthy of comparison. You want to look at this Levitical high priest and our great high priest? You want to do a comparison review? It's not even a comparison. It's night and day. He is God's son and you are a sinner. Therefore, verse 14, right, first person plural imperative, let us, subjunctive, let us hold fast our confession. So the first imperative is doctrinal, it's theological, it's spiritual, it's internal. He's not calling them to act. He's calling them to, in your mind, have a firm grasp of this truth, of this mysteries of God revealed in the New Testament, this treasure in jars of clay, this, this power that saves people, saves God's people have a clear mental apprehension of this truth that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and hold fast to it. And beyond your mental apprehension, make sure you have a spiritual heart commitment to this truth. That you hold fast to it. The idea there is that you're holding it so firmly, you're preventing it from escaping. It is a slippery truth. Because we are so dense, we are so dis easily distracted, we are such sinners, it is a slippery truth. It's always slipping from our hands, therefore we must hold fast to it to prevent it from escaping. NIV, I like NIV's translation here, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, don't budge, don't move from this bedrock truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So don't compromise. He's not talking about temple, synagogue, sacrifices, ritual cleansing. He's saying in your hearts, in your minds, in your souls, doctrinally stand firm to this profession of faith, to this confession of Jesus as the Messiah. The second reason 
for the supremacy of Jesus as the great high priest. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. <clears throat> you, you go to prophets to have them preach to you. You go to priests for your sins. You go to priests because your heart is hurting. Your, your heart is heavy. You're burdened with guilt and shame. You are grieved in your soul. You sense the disapproval of God. You, you have a crystal understanding of how much you've grieved God and offended God. So you go to the priest so that he might care for your soul and pray for you. That prayer makes the world a difference what kind of person is praying for you. The earthly high priest, he is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses. The word unable there is negative uh, ah dunamis, ah, uh, negative dynamite. It's not that the earthly high priest is not willing. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you. You got to, you know, come back another time. There's a better high priest. Maybe next year they'll get a better, more compassionate, relational high priest to come. You can pray for him then. No, he is unable. He has no ability. He's without the strength to sympathize with your weaknesses. Why? It's because he is a sinner. He is a sinner. He is um, curbed to himself. He is self-righteous. He is proud. He is selfish. He is arrogant. He is indulgent. He is lustful. Right? He loves this world for all those reasons because of his Sinfulness and human limitations, he is unable to care for you and sympathize with you in your weaknesses. But not our great high priest. Our great high priest, that's what he's saying, right? It's able to sympathize with all our weaknesses. How? Because he was tempted in every way as we are, and yet he was sinless. He was without sin. He was tempted. So I've got to make some fine distinctions here. Um, Jesus was, is the Son of God. His essence is God. He was incarnate, clothed in human flesh, so he took human flesh upon himself. He clothed himself as, as in humanity. So he was truly man, fully man and fully God. But because of his thrice holy nature, he could not sin. Right? Impeccability of Christ. Right? That's the, I don't know, people use that term to point out that Jesus was not able, God cannot lie, Leviticus 19. Jesus could not sin because he is God but he was tempted, and that temptation was genuine. He experienced true temptation. So he experienced, and he was tempted to, be, to, to lust, to get angry, to despair. He was tempted to be proud, to be selfish, to be afraid, to be apathetic, and even to not trust the Father all those temptations were real. 
just like us in every way, not in the specific outward way, right? But in the heart level, unlike people, he was tempted in every way, just like us, with every human being, and yet he was without sin. This qualifies him to sympathize with us. Why? Because the duration and the level of temptation, right? His temptation was unique because of the duration of his temptation and the level of his temptation. What is the duration of temptation? I, I don't listen to him as much anymore, but I used to listen a lot to a Dennis Prager. I think he's on 870 now from 9 to 12, uh, 9 to 12 uh, Monday through Friday. I'm not, you know, I'm not advertising for him. I don't know why I said all that. Um, he's on the radio right now, and he had a show, The Best Call I Ever Received, and it was from a husband who was caring for his gravely sick wife. And he called and he said, and he was crying and weeping. He says, I love my wife, but it is so hard. It is so hard feeding her, bathing her, cleaning up after her, hearing her complain. And it's been 10 plus years now, and it is so hard. And he has awful thoughts, awful temptations because it is so hard. And I, that's a, this is most, the most honest call, the best call he's ever received in all his years in radio. Now, let's say you were to meet that, that, that husband. And you said to him, I know exactly what you're going through. I know exactly how hard it is because my wife was sick with the flu for three days last year. Man, three days, runny nose, you know, her coughing kept me up at night. I had to use earplugs, and even still I could hear her, so I couldn't really sleep. And, you know, she had a runny nose, so I, I had to bathe the kids. And for three days, she was complaining, so I had to go and buy, you know, food and, and bring it and, and feed it to her and, and use paper plates and trash it afterwards. For three days, I suffered. Therefore, man, I, I know you, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm there with you. The guy would be aghast. He would be offended. He would say, you know nothing of what I'm going through. Ten years versus three days. Right. So that's, duration is a part of temptation, isn't it? How long you've been tempted? How long you suffered under temptation? Hebrews 2.18. Temptation is suffering. Well, the Bible says Jesus was tempted his whole life. As someone who was holy, without sin, from the moment of his birth, Herod wanted to kill him, and he suffered the whole of his life. Now, Matthew 4, there is three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, but that temptation is tied to his ministry, not to his character, not to his holiness, right? Not to his righteousness. That was a specific temptation given to Jesus for his three and a half years of earthly ministry, but his temptation was his whole life, and he never gave in. To all the temptations that we face, we give in at minute two. We give in at the third minute or the third second. We succumb to temptation, and we feign. We're fighting sin, but really, we barely fight. Jesus fought his whole life. Therefore, in terms of duration, he can 
sympathize with our weaknesses. Not only that, the level of his temptation because he was tempted with everything for one sin. Everything. So the, so the, 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 gra- the level, the depth of the temptation was how much was promised to him for just one sin. So let's say I came to you and I said, tell this lie, I'll give you a dollar. Here, four quarters right now. You lie on this paper and I'll give you a dollar. And you're saying, I'm a Christian. I'm committed to the lordship of Christ. The the Bible is my guide, my authority. I will not lie. Okay, okay, sorry about that. Five dollars. Christ is my Lord, right? I am saved. I've stepped over the line. I'm a committed believer. Okay, $500. I'm a Christian. (laughs) I believe Jesus. Really, $500? No, I'm a believer now. No. $500,000. I'll give it to you right now. Just sign that paper. One lie. And you'll be like, yeah, what is lying? <laughs> what is truth? Like Pontius Pilate. What is truth? Right? Right, let's look at this philosophy, right? epistemology, right? situational ethics. Right? So we know we all have a breaking point. Our righteousness is dependent upon what is promised to us. Well, Jesus was not promised $500,000. He was promised everything in the world for one sin. But he didn't give in. Because he was tempted beyond in every way, the duration and and level, just as we are, yet he was without sin. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, weaknesses here, it um, um, it does not refer to sin. It refers to feebleness or infirmity. It refers to all the natural limitations of humanity. Right? So we're all broken people here. We're all broken. We're just broken in different ways. Some of you are not tempted by drugs, but you're tempted by fear of man. Some of you have no real desire for riches, but uh, security. Having control is your highest idol. Some of you, right, money is not a big deal for you, but friendships are idolatrous, or your husband or wife or children. We're all broken, but in different ways, and we have this, these human weaknesses, human griefs, human brokenness. And so we come with these brokenness, with this weakness to human priests, and what do they say to us? Human priests, say, they say, what's your problem? Get your act together. Like, get a grip. Right? How many times have I prayed for you about this sin, and you're still sinning here? Why can't you just get over it? Just stop it. Right? Will you stop? How many times have I told you stop worrying? Stop being so proud or self-centered. Stop being so anxious. What is the matter with you? After all those books and seminars and conferences and sermons and memory verses and Bible studies and counseling sessions, and you're still broken over this, what is your problem? Will you start obeying? Or you, you fell again? You sinned again? You promised me you'll never do it again? And you sinned again? 
What is wrong with you? That is our weaknesses. When we go to people because they don't share the same weakness, there is no sympathy. In fact, there is often hardness. Jesus, the great high priest, what is, how is his response? He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Thum patheo is to share someone's feelings. It is to understand completely how one feels. It's to be in your heart. So nobody know, nobody's in your heart. Nobody knows what your brokenness is and how much it traumatizes you, paralyzes you, burdens you, enslaves you. No one has any idea, but Jesus does. Because he was tempted in every way and was without sin, he's in your heart and he has complete vivid understanding and not just mental understanding, an existential, experimental, heart understanding of what you are going through. Therefore, he has compassion. He has compassion with your weaknesses. He understands. He understands. So you, you fall into your habits, habitual sin, constitution again, he understands. He sympathizes. He doesn't condone it. He's not saying great, but he understands. You're enslaved again to yourself. You just can't get this area submitted to the Lordship of Christ. He sympathizes. He understands. He's brokenhearted with you over that. He is not condemning you. He does not judge you. In fact, that is one thing, one that he carried to the cross. The first Description of the crucified Messiah by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 4 is that he carried our griefs on the cross. He carried our griefs. Matthew 8, 17. Matthew is a direct quotation of the Hebrew Isaiah 53, 4. And the Greek word that Matthew uses is athnesos, which is weaknesses in Hebrews 4. So what did Jesus carry on the cross? He carried our brokenness, the consequences of our humanity, our sorrows, our pain, our weaknesses, and he carried it for us. Therefore, he understands. He has compassion. Therefore, you think no one is in your circle of your pain, of your of your dysfunction, of your brokenness, of your weakness. No one understands? No, there is someone who understands, who's inside that circle. And who is that? It's Jesus. How does he know? Because he carried that pain on the cross. He carried that pain on the cross. And so just like the cupbearer to to a king, he would take a sip of a drink to make sure it didn't have any poison. Jesus pre-drank every cup that's given to us in this life. All our temptation, all our sorrow, grief, weakness, brokenness, all our suffering, it was pre-experienced by Jesus. He doesn't give us anything before he tasted it first himself. He sympathizes with everything. You look at that sympathizes and it's uh, present active indicative. It's present tense. He continues to sympathize with us. Now, I've got to make this clear. The sacrifice was once for all. 
The sacrifice on the cross is never repeated. But the sympathy of the Savior is repeated every single day. Every single day. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now, illustration here. Um, one of the running jokes in my household is like, who is tougher? Who is stronger, my wife or I? Right? So I say, my wife is tougher. She says, I'm tougher. No, that's not how it goes. No. My wife says, she's stronger. I'm stronger. Right? And so she brings out the nuclear evidence, which is four kids without epidural. Right? <laughs> He says, James, you don't know what pain is until you've given not one, but four kids without pain medication. You don't know what that's like. And I say, I know what that's like. I was there right next to you. <laughs> Hearing you scream and holding onto that bed for dear life. I was with you. I, right? So she says, that pain. And I was saying, but you know, God has given women this endorphins. Is that right? Is that right, Huey? That God has given women's bodies. This like natural painkiller, right? So where they give birth and that pain, they forget. They really forget because it's erased from their minds because God's given them this miraculous body to like, you know, counteract their pain. So you, guys, you don't really feel it. It's that moment. It's gone. But my pain, <laughs> my pain is several times playing basketball, I've sprained my ankle. Misty knows what I'm talking about, right? If you don't, if you've never sprained your ankle, you're laughing. But if you sprained your ankle, you're agreeing with me right now, right? Because there is no pain like a sprained ankle. Playing ball, right? Amen, brothers? Right? <laughs> you go for a rebound, and your ankle buckles twist, and you land your full, right, 145 pounds weight, maybe a little bit higher, it lands, <laughs> a little bit more, lands on that ankle, and you twist it, and you fall on the ground, and it's just out-of-body experience, you want somebody to cut your leg off, it is just <laughs> incredible pain. So much so, when I'm watching sports, and you watch basketball, and somebody twists their ankle, and they go back, and they do a slow-mo, high-definition, close-up of that ankle twisting, and that player writhing on the floor, you're watching that, and you re-experience your ankle sprain. You're saying... I know what that's like. I actually feel my ankle. Right? Humorous illustration for this point. Jesus is not in heaven at the right hand of God's throne in a, in a lazy boy chair. He's not soaking it in. He's not having an eternity with ease, looking at us, you know, being persecuted, going through suffering, right? going through serious difficulties of life going through adversity and pain and loss, and he's not up there, my work is done, right? Whew, I can rest and watch you guys. No, present active. So, the death was once for all, but the sympatheo, the sympathizing is present active indicative. Every time we suffer, we are tempted, we feel our brokenness. He has compassion with us at that moment, and he is with us, and he feels what we're feeling. He undergoes what we're going through. And he is merciful. He is loving. He is compassionate towards us. He re-experiences that pain with you. And we see this vividly in the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 8. Stephen preaches Christ and he is stoned and he's near death. 
And he says, Behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Every other verse, Jesus is sitting. Why is he standing? He is standing because he is sympathizing with Stephen. He is re-experiencing what Stephen is going through as the fear floods his heart as men raise their hands and throw stones at him and he feels it in his face and body and he fears that he might give into the temptation of recanting his faith and he is resolute and he's looking at God and asking for faith, asking for strength and he sees Jesus, he's standing, a picture of his compassion and love towards Stephen and that is Jesus towards us. Jesus is not sitting in a lazy boy chair in a life of ease while his people go through suffering. No. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Therefore, verse 16, let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This second imperative, the first imperative was doctrinal. This imperative is practical. It is addressing our lives. It's a command calling us to obey outwardly. And what is this? Draw near to the throne of grace. Now, what does that mean? That's Christianese. That sounds so beautiful, wonderful. What does it practically mean? How do we draw near to the throne of grace? The, the two words, with confidence, tells us. With confidence speaks of speaking. Act of speaking. The attitude of openness, boldness, outspokenness. Joyful sense of freedom in terms of speaking to a king. So it is the call to prayer. It's a call to prayer. Therefore, because in our weakness, he sympathizes, therefore pray to the Father through Christ with freedom. Ephesians 3.11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness, confidence, same word, and access with confidence through our faith in him. 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence, same word that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So the imperative is to go to Jesus, go to God through Jesus in prayer, with confidence, draw near to the Father because because of what Jesus did, the throne has been transformed. It was a throne of judgment. The throne of the law and condemnation. But now to the high priest of Jesus, because he sacrificed not animals, but himself, the throne has been transformed to a throne of grace. Therefore, the writer says, draw near to this throne of grace. Go to the Father in prayer. So we are called to pray. This tells us an absence of a prayer life is not a discipline issue. 
It's an issue of the heart. Are you covering up your weaknesses? Are you compensating for your weaknesses? Are you compensating by trying to hedge it and balance it with, some, with your strengths? Or with, do you acknowledge your weaknesses, your sinfulness, your brokenness, how, how you fall short of the glory of God that he intended for you? And therefore, you go to the Father and you pour out your heart because you know he sympathizes with you. He's not condemning you. He has compassion towards you. And so you pray. An absence of that prayer life is spiritual, practical atheism. Your Christianity is all just legal. It's all just paper Christianity. It's all attendance. It's external. It's it's law of Moses again. It's sacrificial system in the Old Testament again. It is not what God desires. He calls us. He pleads to draw near to this throne of grace. Why? What happens? So that, in a clause, in order that, it's a purpose statement. Because when we draw near to the Father through Christ with confidence, what do we receive? We receive mercy. What do we find? We find grace. Why those two terms? They complement each other. Grace is the forgiveness of sins. Mercy, I was so blessed by this. I was blessed by a Greek dictionary, right? Because it gave this definition of mercy. Mercy is uh, being relieved, alleviation of the consequences of sin. There are certain consequences of sins where sin's forgiven, but you need your heart lifted from the constant guilt, the shame, the regret, the hurt, the pain that, that, that you have, that you've caused. And God gives you just the right amount of the consequences, not more than you can bear, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And beyond that, he gives you mercy upon mercy. Because of our sins, the consequences, we ought not be able to address the Father. When we pray, He should not listen or answer. He should remove the Holy Spirit from us. He should close Himself from the Word of God where we can't have spirit illumination. He should remove from us a desire for God and for holiness and righteousness. He should cast us away because we're such losers. But He doesn't. When we go to the Father, the throne of grace, we receive mercy. He alleviation of the consequence of sin, and we find grace in our time of need. The word there is a compound word, you, kairos, right? You is eulogy, good. Kairos is not chronos time, chronological time. It's opportunity time, at the right time, at the right good time. So it's not our time. It's not like, God, I want this now. And for us, I want this circumstance to be changed. I want this thing to happen. I want this prayer answered. No, God says, I'm going to give you grace and mercy constantly. And in your, when you need it, at the good opportunity time, I will give it to you. Therefore, prayer is not, give me this, give me that, give me these things. Prayer is, give me mercy, give me grace. God, give me yourself, give me the Holy Spirit. I am needy, I am, I am desperate, give me help. And he gives us his help in our time of need. 
what, what a beautiful high priest we have and what beautiful exhortations given in light of our high priest. My closing thought, thought to you today is, in view of this, this is no time for cowardice. It's no time for shrinking back for half-hearted Christianity. It's not a time to calculate and consider and measure. It's not a time to seek self-protection and to live for this world. No, it's a time for courage. Dear brothers and sisters, receiving strength from Christ, would you stand fast, hold fast to the confession of Christ and they may threaten you. Right? They may take your possessions. They may take your family. They may even take your life. But may you say, here am I. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that I am justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You can take away everything I have and everything I am. I will never let go of this one confession because my Savior, my high priest, passed through the heavens and he sat down at the right hand of God's throne. I will never let go of this one truth in my life. Secondly, Time for courage in your prayer life. In all your weaknesses, just when you failed again, you blew it again, the 50th time again, and you've come to an end of yourself, and you've given up on yourself, finally now, will you go to the throne of grace, knowing that He is the only one who will sympathize with you. He's the only one who is in the circle in your close circle of your weakness, your brokenness, and he has compassion, he understands you, he loves you, he does not condemn, so will you go to him? Will you draw near to him and pour out your heart in prayer so that you will not stand on your own righteousness? You will not seek to be your own high priest? You will not seek to be a mediator. You will not seek your works to be a mediator between you and God. You will not seek another person to be a mediator between you and God. You will seek the great high priest Jesus to be the one mediator who loves you, has compassion for you. Therefore, you will go to God through him alone, standing on the rock of Christ, and you'll pour out all your weaknesses, pour out your confessions, pour out your heart to him, and he will give you all the mercy and grace you need to stand for Christ, to live for Christ, to obey Christ, he will be the source of your help in your time of need. Let's pray.